0: Hello and welcome to the Sport in History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. It's a bit of a first this week for the podcast as I'm talking to an art historian, uh, but an art historian who deals with sport, that is Dr Bernard Vier of Sotheby's Institute. But before that, just a quick reminder that our new seminar series will be starting this month um, on January the 27th at the IHR here in London and Veronica Smith will be talking about Victorian baths in Manchester and the artworks inside those baths so if you're an art lover uh, do come along to that one as well but without further ado um, let's listen to uh, Bernard Veer this week I'm talking to Dr Bernard Veer of the Sotheby's Institute of Art here in London hi Bernard hi Bernard is the Programme Director of the MA in Fine Arts and Decorative Design at the Sotheby's Institute, which has its home in Bedford Square in Bloomsbury, which is where we're recording this now. And he is the author of Sport and Modernism in the Visual Arts in Europe, which was published by Manchester University Press in 2018. He has also published widely on the representation of sport in the visual arts and design in the 20th century, and is currently working on a piece on the home as visualised by the French avant-garde between the wars, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But first Ben, I'd like to start by talking to you about your latest book on sport and modernism in the visual arts. Uh, Where did the initial idea for the book come from?
1: Okay, so I um, I did my PhD at a place called the London Consortium, which doesn't exist anymore, but was a collaboration between Birkbeck, the Tate, the ICA and the Architectural Association. And my PhD was nothing to do with uh, sport at all. Um, It was all to do with British modernism. But as I came to the end of it, and I'd really been turning myself into an art historian over a period of maybe seven or eight years, I had this kind of noticeable, or or every work that I saw that involved sport, I noticed because I was always very interested in sport as well. And towards the end of that period, it really became evident that this was something that I wanted to work on. So this was the post-PhD project. Um, at that time, the consortium was run by a guy called Stephen Connor, um, and Steve was writing a book, or just in, the, just in the beginning stages of thinking about a book called The Philosophy of Sport, which came out from Reaction as mm. well. So there was a kind of small impetus to get this uh, kind of work done, um, but it didn't happen immediately because I was lucky enough to get, uh, take up my current post or current employers at Sotheby's Institute. Um, in 2006 which was pretty much when I finished the PhD and that meant that I had to write a lot of lectures because I yeah. had a new job um, so um, I had a meeting with the person who ran the course and she was trying to tell me about the way in which the course philosophy worked and she said I do a lecture called Hands in the Baroque and this is kind of a <laughs> side I thought oh, okay um, and the, the point of Hands in the Baroque was you could tell which artists have painted which hands by the way that they did you know by the way that they did these kind of incidental details but i thought if you can have hands in the baroque i can have bicycles in the early 20th century yeah um, and i because i had this kind of database of images i knew that goncharova um, and boccioni and metzanger um, and lionel feininger for different artists from different parts of europe but with different kind of affiliations that we normally put on them I'd all done uh, pictures paintings of cyclists um, as well so i developed it first of all as a lecture uh, but then uh, there was a special issue of the international journal of the history of sport mm. that was put together by uh, mike O'Marney and mike huggins um, and that was First of all, a conference. So I pitched this as a conference paper idea from then. We had a great conference. It was the first time I'd met sports historians as opposed to art historians, um, which I think we'll come on to later. You're still willing to talk to us? <laughs> more, than, more than happy. Um, but, um, and it was a really, really good conference. And there was a publication that came out of it, indeed, a second conference and a book. So it was very well organized. Um, but after that, I really thought, okay, there is something here. And I can turn the rest of this into into a book. So I sat on quite a lot of the material, did a few conferences but then um, got the got the book as a whole published by Manchester a couple of yeah. years
0: ago. And uh, that actually talking about cycling really brings me on to the next question I wanted to ask you about because uh, you have a, a chapter which is about cycling and about um, motor racing isn't yeah. it? and kind of those aspects of modernity and the kind of speeding up of life at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Um, but you also use this concept um, which you call fairground modernity and you apply this concept to the history of sport and uh, you use representations of cycling um, when you're talking about that fairground modernity. Can you explain what what you mean by fairground modernity? Um,
1: yeah, I can. It's not my turn. No. <laughs> of, I can't claim all the credit for it. But um, it comes from um, a, a book in an exhibition um, by Kirk Varnado, who was the uh, director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, mm. and, and Adam Gopnik. Um, and the exhibition was quite a landmark exhibition, late 80s, early 90s, I think, called High and Low. And it, it was one of the first exhibitions that looked at a range of artistic production, particularly early 20th century production, in the light of Low culture, or what mm. might call popular culture. Um, and they actually use the term fairground modernity to uh, talk about uh, work or work by an artist called Robert Delaunay. Mm. His Cardiff team work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what they—I mean—I can actually read you, uh, read you the definition oh, wow. <laughs> of what fairground <laughs> this modernity. Is the best pre- prepared uh, guest I've ever had. Well, uh, yeah, now of course I can't find the passage, but uh, in yeah, they wrote about that that work and we'll talk about it later but in sum this picture posits a coalition among adventurism athletics technology publicity and art and the whole composite alliance is suffused with the glow of a fairground modernity based on the creation of new thrills spectacles or amusements things produced either for their own sake or in hope of profits but with no excuse in practicality or necessity and I thought that worked even better for cycling racing, yeah. which where where the whole idea is you just move around in a large circle around France, or you just yeah, you know, yeah. you know, kind of um, and and the whole way in which cycling worked as an operation um, interested me from the outset. Yeah. So I'd always been interested in the Tour de France. I've watched it since uh, Channel Four started its coverage in the mid '80s. And one of the things that always struck me about it was its Unashamed commercialisation. So you had, you know, teams that were named after French DIY chains, or you know, all the. I remember working in a pub once, and I looked down, and the the thing that washed the bottles and the the pint glasses was made by Fagor. Oh which was God! So was I never like, knew what Fagor <laughs> did. Well, that's what they did. <laughs> they so had they, these they, peculiar <laughs> European names, yeah, which sounded exactly. like kind and of so they were so horror film characters. Yeah. So yeah. all of this was very, very exotic, and yeah. so I've always been interested in this way that advertising. And the whole thing had all been predicated, really right from the start, although they didn't have that level of commercial sponsorship, but it was all predicated on selling bikes and selling, selling, box, selling advertising selling and, and selling newspapers. Yeah. 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 Um, and the particular work that I looked at in relation to that is a work by a cubist artist called Jean Metzinger, and it's called At the Cycle Race Track. Um, and it shows the, the closing stages of Paris-Roubaix, mm. um, the famous one-day classic. So... Um, it not only does that, but it actually incorporates newspaper clippings that refer to Paris-Roubaix. And the whole reason that Paris-Roubaix exists is because of the newspapers. So there's a tremendous kind of circularity, these things. And, and that's where the idea of fairground modernity comes in, because mm. all of these things are kind of linked up with um, an idea of spectacle, not necessarily in a strict situationist sense, but the idea of putting on a show um, and a lot of the works, not all of them, but a lot of the works that predate the First World War mm. are really kind of celebrations of events. And I think that's one of the things that is going on in the book is if I had to generalize, you know, the, the earlier kind of stuff is very much more celebrating the sort of event character of this and the spectacle of it and trying to capture something of what it's like to be there. Um, whereas the works that happen after the First World War, I think there's a bit of a shift. And sport becomes something that's thought about in more structural kind of ways, or more regimented ways in many ways, I think, as yeah. well.
0: well it's interesting you brought up the Robert Dele- Robert Deloney uh, painting, because uh, that's, that's the cover of the book. A, it is. It's a yeah. really nice reproduction yeah. of, of that painting of the Cardiff team. <laughs> And if anybody's going to Paris, I would really recommend that they go to the, it's the modern art museum, the Parisian modern art museum. Yes, exactly,
1: it's the city's modern art museum. And
0: uh, you can see it there, and and it's it's really striking, and I think it's the same with the Messanger, which is at the Guggenheim in Venice, I think, where you're seeing all of these modernist masterpieces and they're like oh my god there's some sport here as well this is yeah, even better no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well that's, that was very much my life yeah for the, the sort of five years
1: in which I was thinking
0: about the book
1: it yeah. was just, so it was just going around thinking oh good there's another sporting one and that's kind of like that but yeah the, the Delaunay work is a spectacular work yeah. um, as well it exists in three different versions um, as well but the one in Paris is is definitely the definitive version
0: and um you also talk about the relationship between that painting and photography, which of course was also developing very rapidly yeah. at the time. I mean, can you talk some more about the relationship and how Deloney used photography in his work?
1: Yeah, I mean there's a really interesting sort of sequence of events that happens um during the you know, during the development of this um painting as well. It's quite complicated, but uh Balornay is already working on a rugby painting and we don't know quite what that looks like and that's quite an interesting thing I don't think anybody's really got to the bottom of this but we know he's working in it uh, we know he's working on the rugby painting because he, he writes to a German artist um, around the turn of the year 1912 1913 uh, that he's working on this painting of rugby players um, but then he finds this uh, photograph that's uh, published I think in, in the middle of January um, in 1913. And uh, that photograph appears in La Vie en Grand Air, um, which is a sporting Parisian sporting publication and that's very photograph heavy Mm. which is good for me because my French isn't great so (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of like so to find to find a source where um, you know the the bulk of the material was actually photographic I found a good quote about it
0: where where somebody said that it was a magazine for people who don't like reading yeah, yeah. <laughs> so
1: that' was certainly the case yeah. <laughs> certainly the case for me but I actually employed some really really great uh, photographers as well yeah you know, some mm. people who went on to be famous uh, photographers so um, the I didn't find the photograph uh, it was in delaunay's actually archive so people always knew that he based it on this photograph of a rugby lineout mm. so what you have are two teams um, competing for in a line out as well and one person, uh, catching the ball um, and one of the oddities about this is it's called the Cardiff team um, but the two teams that are featured in the photograph neither of them are from Cardiff they're actually they're actually a team called Scuff which was the like, yeah, I'm sure that's better f- yeah they're yeah. No, a university, <laughs> yeah, girl, they're a university they? team yeah. and they're playing Stade to Lausanne who were the best team in France around this time so um, So there's always been a question, and that would be the question that sort of people would ask me at conferences when I said what I was working on. They'd say, well, you're looking at, you know, you're of course looking at the Delorno picture. I'd say, well, yeah, of course I'm looking at the Delorno picture because, you know, this was a big picture. I mean, it's big literally. Yeah, it is. It's over two meters tall, I think. Yeah. Um, But also Apollinaire, the famous critic, had called it the most modern picture in the Salon when, uh, when it was exhibited in March of 1913 as well. So it's a really famous picture, but people would always say, do you know why it's called the Cardiff Team? You bother <laughs> Because this shows Toulouse versus Scoof. So, um, but in the book I've got a sort of suggestion about why that might be. We know there was uh, we know that there was an article called the Cardiff Team that uh that Delornay probably read again mm. around about the time of January 1913 when he's sort of looking for a title for it um, as well. But there were also quite strong connections between uh, the team in Cardiff and um, and the Parisians as well. They came over and played matches. Um, they were focused in the press as well.
0: I think, you well, know. They were very glamorous in that era for French. They were because british rugby was so much more advanced than french at yeah. that stage or the french rugby was catching up wasn't yeah it? but yeah these were big events weren't they yeah they were so it
1: was a way for the french to sort of test themselves mm. against against the top sort of british teams as well but i also think that car and cardiff were very successful mm. but i also think they were quite um because of the way that rugby developed in wales and this is maybe a Rugby Union developed in Wales and this is maybe a generalisation but it was a bit more of a working class kind of thing as well. Uh, And Delaunay liked all of that as well so he was actually, he was the son of a countess but he trained as a theatre painter in Belleville right. so, so that's why that's why you paint large amounts of canvas very very quickly because he trains but it samples. was like he, yeah exactly he was kind of slumming it a bit so yeah. I think the Cardiff team also sort of checked that box as well as being international and yeah. sort of high quality um, as well yeah
0: um, and he kind of inspires doesn't he this other artist called Andre Lut, who I was not really familiar with and you kind of take yeah. you trace that development of art as a consequence of World War I through him, don't you?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, Lot is, is definitely a name that's not as well known as Delaunay. And I should say there's a kind of centre, there's another picture uh, by Albert Glaze, who was a uh, a Cubist artist, actually wrote a book with Metzinger called On Cubism, which mm. is the first account that we have by Cubists of what Cubism actually is. And in the same exhibition that Delaunay showed the Cardiff team, um, Glaze showed a work called uh, The Football Players, or The Footballers, um, which was another painting of rugby. I should say at this point that I'm not a particular rugby <laughs> fan. <laughs> and that when I was going around making these mental checklists of things that had uh, sport in them, I was quite gratified by the number of French, uh, French painters that had football in the title and then because I like football a lot um, but subsequently then quite disappointed to realise that when the French said football before 1914 they actually meant rugby and yeah. all of these paintings were then about rugby and that meant that I had to go away and research the history of French rugby which turned out was actually one of the most interesting parts
0: of the research I think yeah, I think you used Phil Dine's book
1: yeah I used Phil Dine and Thierry Teme, mm-hmm. Um and um, yeah and you know and a lot of Sort of general sports history as well. I mean, going back a bit further, you know, um, uh, Richard Holton, yeah, people like yeah. that. But also, you know, all these connections between Corbettin was the first referee of the, you know, the first French championship, and and this kind of social exclusivity that there was, and to French rugby and the way that they very self consciously imported a British sport. I found that mm. all of that fascinating. I hadn't really known anything about it. But to get back to Lotte, mm. um, Lotte is a, another Cubist um, as well, so he he's probably slightly closer to Glez than he is to Delaunay uh, in actual fact, but he starts producing rugby pictures, and there's one in the Pompidou collection, although it's at the Pompidou in Metz, um, that uh, are quite sort of Cubist initially. Um, and as the war comes, um, and Lot is a great patriot although he's invalided out very conveniently early in the war so he sits out the war but he does, um, yeah, he, he does these kind of paintings at the end of the war and, and, and just afterwards where he's treating rugby in a much more naturalistic kind of way um, as well and in a way that seems to parallel the way that rugby itself was used during the first world war so rugby was you know seen as being one of the reasons why it was imported was the reaction to the french defeat in the franco-prussian war yeah and this was exactly and this was a kind of way in which you could rejuvenate french manhood without having to do german gymnastics yeah (laughs) you know it would be kind of like freer and more creative and and again in uh villegrand there's a lot of um A lot of the wartime issues are about how rugby is training you for the war as well and it's quite sort of perverse in a way because one of the things they say is their hold up is really good they you know they show two teams from before the first world war and say look how many of these people have been killed and wounded isn't this great yeah. you know, it's kind of like and it's like well, i'm not sure it's supposed to train you to get killed or wounded but they are you know they're being presented as a training ground for heroes in the first world war it's a
0: kind of an ideal masculinity the rugby Absolutely. can be uh, positioned onto soldiering yeah exactly yeah
1: yeah and that's the you know that's the sort of thing that Lote picks up on this kind of now much more national kind of sentiment to it as well and indeed you know if you look at the background of Delaunay's Cardiff team it's full of symbols of modernity and big Mm. city life it's full of adverts there's a ferris wheel Um, there's a there's a plane going over the top of it if you look at the backgrounds of Lote's work they're very bucolic there's a church in the background there's hedges there's kind of you know it's that kind of feeling very
0: english conception of sport at that time yeah
1: exactly yeah yeah. so i think um it was interesting i i I knew lotus as a name i knew i think i knew one of the rugby paintings but there there were actually a lot more than i realized there were probably about six or seven and at one point i had to I had to develop a PowerPoint just to keep track of all the different versions of this because there were rugby paintings coming out all over the place from Lot as well. And he actually repaints some of them in almost exactly the same sort of detail as well. So some of them exist in more than one version.
0: And and you you also have a chapter on what you call um, adversarial modernisms, which takes on boxing and tennis. So these kind of things which are kind of face-to-face contests, I guess, aren't they? But you there's a really interesting analogy that you make about uh, between the transition of style from Art Deco to Modernism in the early 20th century and the development of women's tennis. So I wonder if you could open up that <laughs> idea because it's a really I, I really like that idea.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I have to be quite careful. But the 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 kind of I mean, some people would say that Deco is a variation of Modernism. anyway. we've yeah. got quite a lot of time for that view. But the the discussion of tennis really opens up with this strange photograph that the architect Le Corbusier includes in one of his books Um, and it's a very blurry photograph not a very good photograph and you suspect he could have found a lot clearer and sharper ones if he wanted to of a men's singles match and Le Corbusier is a writer who uses photography in really interesting ways in his texts Um, and then they're very rarely referred to directly in the text themselves so they're there as sort of a parallel Dialogue, and mm. you have to kind of put to do a lot of work to try and find out what they mean. So I was trying to find out what this this tennis match meant. Um, and tennis was a big thing for modern architecture and modern artists as well. I didn't I didn't mention this so much in the book, but people like Ben Nicholson, for example, was a huge tennis player and played right. almost every day. Um, but so it was a very it was a very big thing. You, you couldn't really, at the time, build a modernist villa without sticking a tennis court in its in its grounds. Um, and, of course, Le Corbusier did build modernist villas, but he was also quite keen that his work, as he saw it, wasn't going to get caught up in some sort of fashionable version of modernity, uh, something that Peter Wallen calls lifestyle modernism, and I think he's using the phrase from someone else. but. Yeah. Um, um, and that I feel was a kind of danger that he saw in tennis, because at the same time that he was writing all of this, then the best player, male or female, in the world was uh, Suzanne Longlan who mm. of course you know still has a court named after her in Paris um, today, uh, and. Lola was a sensation on the court because she won a lot of matches, but she was also a sensation on the court because of the way that she dressed. So yeah. she would, and and this was a very sort of modern way of dressing. So she had Jean Patou as a couturier to design her dresses. She wore, you know, bandanas. She wore uh, she wore amulets around her arms, um, and she lived a very uh, celebrity lifestyle as well. So um, she. Um, yeah, she lived down in the Côte d'Azur. She mm. was visited by film stars and by um, great sports people as well. Um, she was a superstar. She was she? a superstar. Yeah. And she was so much of a superstar that the Ballet Russe actually made a film called The Blue Train, um, which has a, um, which has a, a character um, that's very obviously based on Longla, who actually, I think, has an affair or certainly goes out with... Um, a character who's based on the Prince of Wales at this point. Okay. And Biel, it's plausible. So he he wears these golfing bags. He got so. around. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, and she's she wears this sort of trademark uh, sort of uh, clothing, which in the ballet is designed by Coco Chanel, mm. but is based on the designs that Patou made for uh, Longon as well. Um, and this ballet is written by Cocteau. I think it has music by Satie. Mm. Picasso does the the you know, Picasso does the theatre curtain for it. So so it is a modernist production, but it's the sort of modernism that Le Corbusier would be very, very mistrustful of this kind of easy um, kind of appropriation of these kind of um, styles. And one of the things that really interested me about this and Le Corbusier's photograph is that later in the 1920s, towards the end of the 1920s, Siegfried Gideon, who was a close associate of Le Corbusier's an architectural critic and also the secretary for the International Modernists uh, Association of Architects. Um, he includes a female uh, tennis player at the net, looking quite sort of fashionable as well. So it's kind of well, has what's Gideon's relationship to this kind of lifestyle modernity? And I think it's fair to say that it is more accepting of it than Le Corbusier mm. had been um, as well. But I also think to come back to the original question uh, that. Um, that partly this is a change in who the dominant female tennis player actually was, because by the end of the 20s, when Gideon is, is writing, it's Helen Wills. And Helen Wills is the practical, you, know, uh, mega-efficient um, visor wearing, but nothing else particularly going on sartorially. Uh, kind of epitome of the, the American girl. Rationality. Rationality, yeah. absolutely. Straight, no nonsense kind of thing. And one, one of the things that really, in, I think they only played each other once and it was an exhibition match in Nice, but as they come out onto the court, they actually really replicate the way in which modern women were being viewed in the 1920s in that Longland is portrayed and portrays herself as um, in this kind of slightly slouching position with her hand on her hip in exactly the sort of way that the Young Women's Christian Association were warning people against flappers, <laughs> while Helen Wills <laughs> is very, very straight and upright in exactly the sort of way that the Young Women's Christian Association and presumably Le Corbusier were suggesting that, that modern women should actually be. So you have these kind of two figures who are both very, very modern figures in their way, both taken up by artists um, as well as Alexander Calder made a little wire, I don't discuss this but Mike O'Marney does oh, in right. his book he yeah. makes a little wire sculpture um, of Helen Wills and you can tell it's Helen Wills because of the visor um, But you know, so they're both very very modern but very very different versions of what modern could be and one is far more sort of deco and lifestyle modernism and the other one is much more the, the sort of Le Corbusier sort of path
0: I'm glad you sort of brought it back to Le Corbusier there, because also um, I think it's the final two chapters of the book deal with uh, modernism and architecture, don't yeah. they? And so obviously he's a practicing architect, isn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. How do you see the modernist creed informing architectural practice in sports stadium, for example? I think
1: sports stadia is a really interesting and and also very troubling in a way because a lot of the stadiums that are built, that are the modern stadiums, are are built by, or at least under, fascist regime. So if you think about the stadium in Berlin, for example, where, where Hertha play now, the Olympic Stadium, yeah. that was originally, you know, that was Werner Mark um, with some touches of Albert Speer in it as well. Um, much to Hitler's well, Hitler didn't like, supposedly Hitler didn't like the original design and wanted it made slightly more classical. But the, a lot of the stadiums that I look at, um, you know, in Italy, um, the Stadio Mussolini in Chirin, which speaks yes. for itself, but yeah. it's now the, now the Stadio Olimpico in Turin where Torino play, and uh, a stadium that was called the Giovanni Berta at the time after a fascist martyr. Uh, in Florence, which is where Fiorentina now plays, mm. the Artemio Franchi. Um, these were modernist stadia that were being designed under a fascist totalitarian government, but they were, um, but they were designed along very modern sort of precepts as well. So the 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 stadium in um, the stadium in Florence has an almost cantilevered roof. It's very very modern. It has this incredible spiral. Um, staircases as well it has a very tall tower which is still there which is glass fronted and was designed for radio transmissions and things like that and there was a big projected stadium that never got built called the International Red Stadium that was supposed to be built in what was then the Lenin Hills above Moscow yeah. um, as well and so and a lot of the um, a lot of the, the sort of top Soviet architects who were very influenced by Le Corbusier and things that were going on in the west were um, were involved in the design of that, including uh, El Zitsky, who's a, you know a, a real protean figure of modernism as well he's across painting and architecture and typography and photography and all sorts of other things as well but he did some works and some design for a yacht club that was supposed to be part of that. Um, supposed to be part of that complex although it, it never got built that's
0: a really interesting part of the book because it was something I wasn't aware of the kind of the Italian architecture partly because I've been to you know Rome and yeah i seen uh, the stadium that's next to the Olympic Stadium yeah they've still got these kind of yes weird statues there, yeah yeah there's
1: this the stadium of marbles yeah yeah uh, yeah but that, I mean, that stuff's still more obvious yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know what that says about italy but yeah, it's yeah. kind of an eye-opener to somebody who's yeah. used to go and watch darlington at fiatons but <laughs> uh,
0: but you're also working on architecture and modernism at the moment aren't you for a new piece yeah exactly so
1: um there's going to be a book that's coming out called sport and modernism um that's um going to come out with brill i'm I'm a contributor, I'm not editing it, but it's been edited by a couple of uh, people who I know. And um, so I picked a collaboration between Le Corbusier and Charlotte Perriand and Fernand Leger, the artist who also mm. comes out of Cubism as well, and a designer who's much less well known even in the field than those three names a guy called Rene Herbst. Um, and this is a design for a young man's home, and it's for an exhibition in Belgium in 1935. Um, and what's remarkable about it is that the front half of the young man's home is an office with you a know, very nice appointed blackboard and slate table and quarry tiling floor um, and some furniture that was designed by Perrion Le Corbusier. Um, and the back half of this room is uh, a gym uh, designed by René Herbst. and um, it. It's separated by a net, so things like your medicine balls don't go flying into your office, <laughs> um, for example. Um, but it also has, it has some Indian clubs in it and some, uh, some weights. And it has a, a punch bag um, and some, uh, some rings, some gymnastic rings. And on the back wall of this, there is a large um, uh, painting by Leger. It's actually the largest painting that he'd done um, at that point. Um, and it's called exercise room as well mm. and it, it, it's a you know it's a very very large painting it, it functions effectively as a mural I think it's about four meters wide mm. so it's it's even larger than the Cardiff team whereabouts is that painting now um, it's uh, right at this moment and this is uh this is one of those things about working on something. It's in Paris. It's in the middle of a Charlotte Perriand exhibition at the Louis Vuitton uh, Foundation in Paris. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So it wasn't when I started working
0: on this. Oh, I read a, I read a review of that show. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I didn't connect the two when we I'm, talked about it before. So I'm
1: going to go and see it next month. So yeah. So, um, yeah. so um, this is one of those things where I thought I was working on quite a neglected project that I knew from one or two photographs and one or two sort of passing references yeah. on it and it's suddenly rebuilt uh, in the middle of Paris, although I gather they haven't really reconstructed the gym, they're mm. more interested in Perrion's bit and they've got the Leger um, painting as well, I think it's a private collection. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah.
0: Um, I, I, we've talked a lot about Europeans and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously yeah. we're the British Society of Sport History <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting because over Christmas I stumbled across a painting in the National Gallery where they've got a, uh, a small room of David Bomberg's uh, works who's an early British modernist yeah. and one of those works is called jiu-jitsu so it kind of made me think actually so what about the British dimension are the British involved in this I know that your book focuses on Europe
1: yeah, and they very much are. I mean, um, Bomberg's brother was actually a boxer. He was, right. He was called American Mowy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, like a lot of European things, shows you how dominant American boxing was mm. compared to anything else. But, yeah, so um, Bomberg was uh, an East Ender. Um, and he, uh, so he worked around Whitechapel. Um, and Whitechapel was... I don't know what it was like for jiu-jitsu clubs. (laughs) Yeah, it it, it seemed an outlier to me. (laughs) But but it was certainly one of the centres for boxing um, as well. He was very good friends with an artist called William Roberts. Um, And Roberts is somebody who painted a lot of scenes about boxing uh, sort of all the way through his career really, and sport as well actually, well sport more generally. There's a... There's a football match that was, it's with a private gallery in London at the moment, but was on show at uh, Freeze Masters earlier this year Mm. as well. It's probably done in Regent's Park. Oh, I right. think it's fair to say that Roberts doesn't
0: have much I'm assuming that we've both played football yeah, in are, Park. Yeah. Football <laughs> Park. Yeah, I think we have both Park. Listeners may not know that we must have met each other probably 10, 15 years ago, but in very different circumstances on a football pitch. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so Roberts had... Um, Roberts had a very close relationship to Bumbo. They were very good friends. And Roberts himself was born in Hackney. Um, and they frequented the boxing clubs... Um, premier land wonderland in uh, the east end as well and i wrote
0: one of our other guests has spoken about um, that club okay um, yeah yeah either either on the podcast or, or okay. the ihr right um, sorry i don't want to interrupt you no it's yeah. very it was it's a very very, very off all interesting connections in my <laughs> head yeah. it was a
1: very very interesting thing actually so um one of the benefits about doing the job i do and having a connection to the auction house is that you you Everybody, all artists you're in should be looking at what goes through auction houses because mm. there's an amazing amount of stuff. But, um, but one of the things about actually having subbies in the name is I have to go over and talk to people at the auction house quite a lot. And you know, about sort of eight years ago, there was a, a large scale drawing, um, by Roberts called Boxers, which I think he'd done in 1914. Um, and I'd written my PhD, or at least part of my PhD, had been on a British movement called vorticism, Mm -hmm. which is the sort of uh, equivalent to um, sort of cubism and expressionism and futurism, and that's the way they thought of it themselves. Um, And Roberts was the youngest of the vorticists, and so I'd read a lot about vorticism, I'd seen a lot of vorticist work, and I'd never seen this work before. And I reckon that it was only on display... At the auction house so it, that's the only time it'd been on public display probably for about five days since yeah. it was sewn in exhibition in 1915 yeah. and this was this was something i saw in 2011 for a couple of times and haven't seen since oh. but i knew when i was looking at it that this was this was, in a way, this was kind of what you dream of, I yeah, guess. Because yeah. all of a sudden you're not just dealing with, oh, that's a work and it's got sport in. This is like a Vortices work with sport in that I know nobody else has written about because nobody else seems to have known that this thing existed until yeah. it comes to till it comes to the auction house as well. So I wrote an essay for Modernism Modernity on that. One of the things that interested me was the Vortices wrote some manifestos, and one of them says very clearly, glass sport. But at the same time they have a list of people that they like, and there's a lot of boxers in the list of people that they like. So I connected that up with the drawing and looked at that. So there is a British angle to it as well. Um, There's a a Sarah Victoria Turner, who's over at the Mellon Centre, has written very interestingly about uh, Henri Gaudia-Breschka, who's French but another vorticist artist, and his work, Wrestlers, um, that's in Kettle's Yard and the Tate. It exists in several versions. Mike O'Marney's written on the Grosvenor School um, as well. whose work on sport would be familiar to you if you. I ever think looked so. Out. Yeah, yeah. So London Underground transport posters yeah. and things like that. Um, those kind of things. And um, John Hewson wrote on Nevinson's any wintry afternoon in England as well, which is a football uh, match or any wintry Saturday afternoon in England. I think um, that so that's. Nevinson was a futurist in England, Mm. um, although that work's not particularly futuristic in itself. But there are, and I still think that's something that needs doing, there are kind of lots of connections, uh, not just between avant-garde art and sport, although all those examples are more or less of avant-garde art and sport, but also um, just generally connections between parts. Yeah, yeah. Well, also the FA, I mean, I've never done much work on this, but the FA ran a painting competition at one point for painting uh, Painted competition for pictures and football
0: <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I've, I've written uh, recent, uh, listeners who are subscribers to Sport and History um, will, no, will soon discover that I found Bernard through uh, reviewing the book actually for, for that public, publication and one of the things I slammed Lords for was being such a conservative institution until virtually <laughs> the 1960s, <laughs> 70s there's no, virtually no artistic progression at all in the art at Lords. Um, until you really get to, you know, the Botham era, I suppose, or something right, like that. Right. It's very trad, mm-hmm. um, but maybe that kind of reflects That's conservative nice. tastes. No, uh, one in the one elite of the things that Britain. came
1: out of the work on Roberts and the boxers, I was very interested in the typography. It's got this little, it's got this little collage element that does come from Premier Land in Whitechapel. It you know identifies uh, Kid Lewis as one of the boxers. So mm-hmm. they, so you know, I did a bit of work on. Kid Lewis. But I was also interested in the typography of this Premierland advertising material, because it's pretty much the same typography that the voices use mm. in their magazine Blast, which is heralded all over the place as being fantastically, you know, innovative and strong typographically, and turns out to be pretty much the same as this Premier Land advertising material, but also pretty much the same as the cover of wisdom. Which was <laughs> for 1914, which was really interesting because nobody holds wisdom up as like, an example of, an example no. of modernist typography. Uh,
0: but it's interesting talking about um, the way that you straddle fine art and sport and sort of uh, how do you see the two disciplines fitting together? I mean, obviously, the way they've been talking, your your discourse is fitting them together, but. Have you thought yeah, well, about hopefully. this in the way that you present to people at a sports conference as, co- yeah, as opposed I mean,
1: to...? Uh, yeah, I have thought about it. I mean, I think it's, it, I think they are different as well. I mean, I, I think also, you know, I, I began by sort of talking about time at the PhD at the consortium, and that was very self-consciously trying to be interdisciplinary. Mm. You know, I did my undergraduate at UEA in literature and philosophy, and that was also supposed to be very interdisciplinary as well um and as you get older you realize that it's actually harder and harder to do that kind of work Yeah, you have to dig deeper um, and deeper in it yeah, yeah exactly and um so i do think they're different things and i would i would never call myself a sports historian uh, i rely a lot on the work of sports historians and also i was greatly helped in the book because there have been not only a lot of work done on sports history, if you like, just on its own. There have been some fantastic cultural histories of sport mm. as well um, that clearly meshed in a way that I thought was very interesting. So one of the things that the book was trying to do was try and take those cultural histories and just apply them to objects or buildings or photographs or film that I was actually interested in as well. So so in a way those kind of models for those areas to talk to one another were there. Mm. Um, but it is, you know, you do have to acknowledge that they are separate kind of things as well. And I, I did go to the B.S.S.H. Uh, conference a couple of years ago and I was struck because, you know, I spent all my time mainly in art historians' conferences or in conferences that just simply devoted to modernism across the arts as well. And it was a different kind of feeling. It was, people were doing things in different ways. They were researching in different ways. They were asking questions that I hadn't really thought of asking um, as well. And I think, you know, I think I'd like to think that, you know, I'm a, uh, that my kind of disciplinary basis is art history. But I think it's really important to have those sort of conversations as well. Um, but I don't know. I suppose, I mean, also, I'm very, very conscious of this, that... Um, there's a lot of art historians, which is my home discipline, uh, don't like sport and define yeah. themselves absolutely <laughs> as, like, as art historians by the fact that they don't like sport as well. Um, so in a way, I think... Um,
0: I think they should find their inner Dalone. Yeah, yeah, they <laughs> absolutely should,
1: yeah. I think that's a, that's a good lesson for us all. It's like, yeah, how do you marry these things together and, and start having conversations in different sort of areas? Great,
0: well thanks for taking the time to talk to me today That's and uh, I hope we can persuade you to give a paper at the IHR sometime yeah, this I'd love year, to, next yeah. year, later yeah. in the year. After just
1: having said I love talking to sports historians, <laughs> <laughs> I be hard I mean, I've, I've almost got you to sign the contract now, hold <laughs> on. Um,
0: and if you, the listeners out there, are doing some research on sport, whether you're an art historian or if you're a sport historian um, and you'd like to present at the seminar series, we're looking for speakers always Uh, do get get in touch with us via the bssh website which is sportinhistory.org or you can tweet us at the bssh's account Um, and that's all for this episode Uh, so until next time it's goodbye from both of us goodbye goodbye